Welcome to the first season of Murder and 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder and 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Bruce Adams and Brian Orr were good friends growing up and lived just down the road from each other in Sullivan, Indiana. Then Bruce met Christina. They got married and had a baby girl named Tiffany in 1994. But their marriage wasn't meant to last and they divorced in 2003. Then Brian began dating Christina and they lived together just down the block from Bruce. The love triangle drove a wedge between the two friends, and it didn't help that Bruce could see his ex-wife living with his ex-friend a stone's throw from his house. Over the years, the family's feuding resulted in many calls to the police. At first, Tiffany was happy to have an extended family. She now had a stepbrother, Jonas. But things turned ugly in 2013, when Tiffany accused Jonas of rape. She reported it to the police, but when she went to the hospital to have a rape test, she changed her mind. She was worried what it would do to the family. Their family was complicated. Tiffany had an addiction to prescription pills, and Jonas helped her feed that addiction. Their relationship became toxic, and in the summer of 2013, those around them heard Jonas threaten to kill Tiffany and her dad Bruce several times. In the spring of 2014, Tiffany was dating Artem McHenry when she became pregnant. Tiffany and Artem struggled with their relationship, Artem had been adopted as a young child and was looking forward to having a son. They'd already picked out a name, Burston Edward. Wabash Valley News reported that Artem wanted Tiffany to give up her addiction to prescription pills while she was pregnant. Although it appears the young couple loved each other, they hadn't figured out how to make it work and took a break. During that time, Artem was seeking a better job to provide a better life for their son. Meanwhile, Tiffany didn't like how Brian was treating her mum. Her Aunt Donna K. Adams told Investigation Discovery in an episode of Grave Mysteries called Fatal Family Secrets that Tiffany felt Brian was vindictive, manipulative, and controlling over her mother. In September 2014, Christina left Brian and got an order of protection. Then not long after, Christina had a change of heart and withdrew the order and went back to Brian. Tiffany was not happy with her decision and took to Facebook to vent her frustrations posting negative comments about Brian. On September 8th, Jonas sought a protective order from the police. He claimed he was being harassed by Tiffany and that she'd falsely accused him of rape, which he steadfastly denied. Tiffany then began dating Donnie Barron, and they moved to the nearby town of Vincent's for Donnie's job. Court records indicate that on Wednesday, November 5th, Tiffany wanted to pick up some baby clothes from people who lived in Sullivan, She and Donnie didn't drive or have a vehicle, so her dad Bruce picked the couple up at 9 a.m. After arriving in his home with Donnie and Tiffany, Bruce ran an errand. Around 11 a.m., Tiffany called her mom, then decided to walk over to her house just a few houses away to see if she could score some pain pills. Tiffany never stayed more than a few minutes at her mother's, so Donnie thought she'd be back within 30 minutes, but when she didn't return by then, he called Tiffany's cell but got no answer. Then when Bruce returned from the store 
and Tiffany still wasn't back, Donnie was getting more concerned. Investigation Discovery describes Donnie's text to Tiffany, and I quote, How long are you staying at your mom's? He doesn't receive a reply. So then he asks, Where are you? Again, no reply. So he texts her, Hello, text me back, please. And still no reply from Tiffany. Tiffany's dad tried calling her several times, too. No response. Meanwhile, Tiffany had walked over to her mom's house, but she wasn't home, and she turned to leave the front doorstep. She spotted Jonas. He was driving a green Chevy Blazer. Now, Jonas didn't own a vehicle, but his friend Jim Fish had asked him for a favor a day earlier. Jim was working, but his wife Katrina needed a ride to her job in nearby Linton at 7.30 a.m., so Jonas dropped off Jim at the sawmill where he worked, then dropped off Katrina. He then had a few hours to kill, so he went home and spent time with his wife Amber. At 11.15, he left to go pick up Jim on his lunch break so he could drop Jonas back off at his house. Amber was expecting Jonas back home around 11.40 a.m. But Jonas didn't arrive at the sawmill, and at 11.50 a.m., Jim texted Amber. She said Jonas wasn't home. Tiffany hopped into the truck with Jonas. She was eight months pregnant. No one knows what Jonas said to convince her to hop in, but he was her stepbrother and also her drug supplier. Court records show that Jonas used Tiffany's cell phone to text his wife Amber. Jonas and Amber shared a cell phone, and that day it was with Amber. At 11.56 a.m., she received a text that the blazer had broken down. Amber didn't recognize the number, so she texted back, Who is this? At 12.01, she received a reply, Jonas, duh, the blazer broke down. At 12.03, he texted, headed to Jim's work. At 12.06, Amber texted that she was using a golf cart to go look for him. Jonas texted her back to head back home. He was on the back road to the lake, the way I always take. At 12.10, Amber asked whose phone Jonas is using, and he replied, Don't know them, man and woman. Let me text you. Gotta get back now so can leave. Now something must have gone horribly wrong after those text messages. Just before 1 p.m., Bruce received three phone calls from Tiffany's cell. On the first call, he could hear a man's voice in the background. Then the call was cut off. The second call, he heard nothing. Then on the third call, at 12.59 p.m., he could hear a man's voice yelling in the background again and sensed her phone had been snatched out of her hand. On one of the calls, he heard Tiffany's voice saying, Dad! Dad! Bruce thought he recognized the male voice. It sounded like Brian. Bruce immediately tried calling Tiffany back. He tried ten times, but only got her voicemail. The blazer stopped near County Road 325 East, and Jonas and Tiffany exited the truck. Tiffany must have ran, but being eight months pregnant and with the wet ground, it was difficult. Jonas was able to overtake her. In a burst of rage, he used her red hoodie as a noose and tied it around her neck. Tiffany died in a cornfield. Jonas didn't call 911. If he had, her son Bernston may have lived, but Jonas didn't give him that chance. Jonas grabbed Tiffany's phone and drove across the causeway crossing at Sullivan Lake. At 1.26 p.m., the last call from Tiffany's cell phone was to her mother's phone number, but she didn't answer. 
Jonas deleted his text messages on Tiffany's phone and threw it into the lake. At 1.30 p.m., he finally showed up at Jim's work. That afternoon, Jonas and Amber went to Brian and Christina's home. They had an action-mounted camera on their front porch. Bruce happened to look out and saw them arrive, then saw Jonas reach up and tinker with something on the front porch. Bruce was frantic about finding Tiffany, and when Brian and Christina finally returned home in the afternoon, he went over and confronted them, but they claimed they hadn't seen Tiffany. The next day on November 6th, Brian contacted Jonas and told him the SD card was missing from his front porch camera. Jonas and Amber went over and replaced the SD card. It had been two days since Tiffany's frantic phone calls, and Bruce finally reported her missing to authorities. He thought because she was an adult, he had to wait 48 hours, but that's not always the case. Law enforcement began investigating. Tiffany was last seen wearing a pink shirt, red hoodie, shorts, and brown boots. Donnie had mysteriously left town and gone back to work. Police tracked him down and questioned him. Then they tracked down Artem, who had a solid alibi, and both were ruled out as suspects. The sheriff's office subpoenaed Tiffany's cell phone records and also the records for the cell phone Jonas and Amber shared. In the meantime, friends and family conducted search parties, community events, vigils, and hung out posters. But Jonas and Amber never attended. Neither did Brian and Christina. Tiffany's family were hoping that if she decided to go away and take some time for herself, that she'd return soon. It was nearing her baby's due date. As reported in the Tribune Star, on Tuesday, December 30th, Farmer Sean Drake decided it was finally time to harvest his cornfields. It was slighter than usual. This season the ground had been really wet, so he waited for the soil to freeze up so the columbine wouldn't sink in the mud. On his cornfield he spotted a bright pink shirt and a brown pair of boots. He realized he was looking at the body of a woman, a decomposed body. Authorities arrived and noticed a red jacket was knotted around the body, a leaf entwined within the knots. The corn stalks around the body appeared to be knocked down. There was no wallet, no cell phone. An autopsy was conducted the next day. The weather and animals had ravaged the body. Tiffany was identified by dental records. She had been missing for 55 days. A forensic pathologist determined a cause of death was strangulation. She also had one broken rib on her left side. It was also determined that she had likely died the day she went missing and had been lying dead and alone in that cornfield since then. Sadly, her baby died of suffocation caused by her mother's death. It was a double homicide. Tiffany was only 20 years old. A forensic biologist tested the red jacket for DNA but could not find enough to establish a DNA profile. And the leaf that had been entwined in the jacket matched the type of leaves found in the area around the cornfield. Police were suspicious of Jonas and interviewed him the day after Tiffany's body was found. He and Amber claimed they hadn't seen Tiffany since September and that they didn't own a vehicle and had been together all day and watched a rented video on the day Tiffany disappeared. But police knew this to be a lie. Cell phone records showed 14 texts between Tiffany's phone and Amber and Jonas's phone that day. But phone records don't show what was texted 
only the phone numbers that sent and received texts. So police started interviewing people whose numbers appeared on those cell phone records, and they discovered Jim Fish, who told them Jonas had borrowed his blaze of the day Tiffany disappeared. On January 20, 2015, police visited Jonas and Amber again. When they asked to see their cell phone, they claimed they didn't have it. They'd bought a new one. When confronted with Jim's story, Jonas admitted that he'd borrowed the blazer. Police then checked on their alibi renting a video and discovered that hadn't happened until 5 p.m. A search warrant was issued for the blazer, and a forensic scientist from the Indiana State Police Laboratory examined it. In it, they found red fibers that were consistent with the jacket found around Tiffany's neck. The fibers were sent for testing. On January 21st, Jonas was arrested and charged with two counts of murder, one for Tiffany and one for her unborn son. The FBI examined the digital trail from Tiffany's phone. They determined that her phone had made it to her mother's house. It then pinged off multiple towers, showing she traveled five miles. It was moving too fast for walking. She must have been in a vehicle. Her phone moved from west to east to where her body had been found. The last cell phone ping came from an area 100 feet away from the Lake Sullivan Causeway. Law enforcement at this point only had circumstantial evidence against Jonas. He denied being involved with Tiffany's disappearance, but they believe he'd picked her up in the blazer at her mother's and drove her to her murder site. But they needed proof, so they decided to find a needle in a haystack, or in this case, a cell phone thrown into the lake. On August 25th, Indiana State Police divers entered the water in Sullivan Lake. After an extensive search, and against all odds, on the second day of their search, they found Tiffany's cell phone. It was sent to the Indiana State Police Lab in Indianapolis to be examined. They were able to recover two photos, and although text messages had been deleted on the day Tiffany and her son died, they were able to recover them every single word. Court records revealed that while Jonas was held in jail between August 2015 to February 2016, fellow inmate John Klein told authorities about a time he and Jonas were watching TV. It was a cold case murder investigation, and John commented to Jonas, and I quote, He found it hard to believe that someone could avoid talking about a crime like that for so long. And Jonas replied, You'd be amazed at what you can live with when you have to. On another occasion, Jonas indicated that he didn't feel sorry about what he did to Tiffany, but he did feel bad about the baby. Donnie also testified at the trial that Tiffany would have gotten into the blazer with Jonas because of her pill addiction, and that she'd take care of that addiction before anything else. Amber testified that Jonas was always cheating on her, and when he went missing for a few hours on November 5th, she thought he was cheating again. She'd also told police during questioning that on the day Jonas had no marks on his body, no signs of a struggle, and that if you're getting choked, you fight back. Now the interesting thing is, at the time Amber said that, police had never revealed publicly that Tiffany had been strangled. She also testified that she'd previously said if she thought Jonas had killed Tiffany, she would divorce him. In November, 11 months after Tiffany's body was found, Amber filed for divorce. Jonas maintained his innocence, but his defense was weak. 
He had a criminal history going back to when he was a juvenile and 12 convictions as an adult, mostly for battery against law enforcement and women, proof that he couldn't control his anger. Prosecutors brought out the protective order Jones had filed against Tiffany, thus providing a motive. They pointed out Jonas had the use of a vehicle at the time she disappeared, and his route took him right by Tiffany's mother's home, and he knew about the security camera at his father's house. The trial lasted five days, and on July 1st, all the circumstantial evidence together provided the jury with enough evidence to find Jonas guilty of two counts of murder. In sentencing him on July 29th, the judge said, leaving Tiffany and her unborn child to die in a field, their bodies subjected to the effects of nature and the animals showed particular callousness. He sentenced Jonas to 120 years, 60 years for each murder. Jonas was 34 years old. Jonas has never admitted to killing Tiffany and her son and appealed his sentence. In February 2018, the Indiana Court of Appeals upheld his conviction. He is incarcerated at the Indiana Department of Corrections. His projected release date is 2102, when Jonas would be 119 years old. In 2015, Tiffany's older brother Anthony Adams wrote a tribute song to her called Rest Easy. Listening to it on SoundCloud, Anthony's lyrics to his little sister are beautiful and haunting. Fly over the ocean like a bird in the sky. Break free from those chains that once were so tight. You'll rest easier tonight. Thanks for listening to the Murder in 20 podcast with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of serial arsonist John Orr. As the evil flames danced, he hid in their shadows. Thousands of acres burned in California, and hundreds of homes were reduced to charred rubble. A single fingerprint would lead to a firefighter with a dark secret of destruction and murder. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or MurderIn20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe. Sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.